Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. Two of my three opening characters are now amongst the five richest people on the planet, and the story that went along with that, which is not just about the rise of the super, super, super rich, But the broader story about the country that is dangerously unequal has continued as well. On today's episode, I interview James Crabtree, who is currently the executive director of the Asia branch of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Asia. But he was previously the bureau chief for the Financial Times in Mumbai. And it was in that capacity that he wrote the fantastic book, The Billionaire Raj, which I read and reviewed last year. India is very much at a political and economic crossroads at the moment, and the level of analysis that James Crabtree provides in his book is very enlightening. I was super excited to speak to James about the country and those massive changes. In fact, a lot has happened since I interviewed James in December 2022, not least of which the news in the last few weeks regarding Gautam Adani, an Indian billionaire and one of the richest men in the world whose business empire came under unprecedented attack by short sellers in the market. This was prompted by a report issued by the investment research firm Hindenburg Research, which accused the Adani group of fraud. Over a matter of days, Gautam Adani's business empire lost around $100 billion in valuation. So it seems that the extraordinary wealth of this billionaire class can occasionally be accompanied by very rapid falls in wealth as well. I guess my first question to you, James, is what first attracted you to this issue of the rise of a billionaire class in India? What prompted you to write this book? So we moved to India, I mean, it's a while ago now, maybe 10 years ago, and I was working for the Financial Times. I covered a whole range of different sorts of business stories. But the thing that always captivated me was the the Indian tycoon class. If you grow up in, in Europe, I grew up in the northeast of Scotland. I studied in London and America. We don't really have tycoons anymore. I mean, you have Elon Musk and Richard Branson and people like that. But it's not quite the same as in India where the entire business landscape is dominated by family-owned companies led generally by male billionaires who are you know, fascinating characters. And so when friends would come to visit me in India and they'd say, so what's interesting about what you're doing here? What I would find myself talking about was these business tycoons that I would occasionally get to meet and what they were like. Some of them had reputations for being fantastically corrupt. Some of them were <laughs> revered. And I suppose one of the things that was nice about living in India was you've got great access to these people. It isn't like the further east in Asia you go, the more complicated it is to get access to the business and political elite. But India is a reasonably open country. And so I was lucky enough to meet a a bunch of these people and, and felt like 
as my time came to leave the country that I had enough material secreted away in my notebooks to think about writing a book. And so the tycoons led themselves very naturally to telling a slightly different story about the rise of India from the one that is commonly told. So normally this is told through a political lens, you know, from the independence of India in the 1940s through to the Nehru Gandhi dynasty and Dira Gandhi and then latterly the rise of Narendra Modi. But instead I tried to tell that story about the rise of modern India through the rise of its super rich from a country which didn't really have any rich people when it came out of its socialist era in the early 1990s to one that has had an enormous explosion of wealth at the very pinnacle of society and now has more billionaires per capita than any country apart from the United States and China. I mean, in this book, it seems like you got incredible access to a lot of these characters. You highlight some very colorful, quite flamboyant billionaires with impossibly glamorous and luxurious <laughs> lives. But wh why did they want to talk to you? What sort of message do you think they wanted to pass? And, and were they aware that you were writing a book ultimately or, or not so much? Yeah, I always found this a bit mysterious as to why many of them were as open as they were. It's partly, I suppose, that the Indian business class was quite open, more open than it was given credit for to Western capital. And so if you're a business leader and you want to talk to global investors, which at that point still really meant Western investors, you didn't have a number of, a very large number of media outlets that allowed you to do that. And the FT, which I worked for, was one of them. And so if you arrived in the country as the FT correspondent and you were crafty and persistent, then you couldn't see everybody you wanted, but you could see plenty of those that you wanted. Um, at the time, I mean, some of the stories that I told in the book came from interviews that predated the idea of the book. So they were just from kind of ordinary reporting. What happened was I moved to Singapore and that's when I got the book deal. And then I went back to kind of fill in the blanks of a lot of the reporting. So a good number of the stories that I tell in the book came from that period when I was researching the book specifically. But no, it's one of the sort of pleasures of living in India that it was both reasonably open, but also quite Western in its orientation. So, I mean, Indian culture obviously is unique to the place, but the Indian upper strata has very strong ties to the West. They own property in London and send their kids to university in the United States. And so more so than would be true in China, I would say, than you know, something like the Financial Times or The Economist or The New York Times is something that people are familiar with and would, would read themselves and are, are interested in. So I, I think there's also a, a sort of cultural openness for whatever reason. Things seem to have accelerated incredibly fast in India, certainly since the economic reforms of the early 90s. In the last four years since you've written the book, have you seen any developments with regard to this billionaire class that you think has been transformative to this thesis that you had around this class? I have to say, I think the thesis of the book held up pretty well, which is that it only seems to have continued. I profile that the opening third of the book is a series of three portraits of the three Indian billionaires that I considered at the time to be the most interesting and kind of exemplary of the story that I was trying to tell of both entrepreneurialism, but also crony capitalism. And those three men are called Mukesh Ambani, Vijay Malia, and Gautam Adani. 
for the longest time, the first of the three, Mukesh Ambani was India's richest man, I mean, richest by a long chalk. But actually, in the last year, the third of the three, Gautam Adani, has rocketed up not just the Indian wealth leagues to overtake his uh, rival, but also the global wealth leagues, and is now the second or third richest person in the world, depending on which measure you use. So you've had the arrival of two of my three opening characters are now the, amongst the five richest people on the planet. And as far as one can tell, the, the story that went along with that, which is not just about the rise of the super, super, super rich, but the broader story about the country that is dangerously unequal has continued as well. There's, there's been no particular reversal in that trend. Mm -hmm. So it seems like more of the same since you uh, finished the book and, and maybe even perhaps accelerated. In the book, you make comparisons between this huge creation of wealth in India to the Gilded Age in the US and the rise of robber barons in that era. And you also raise the specter of a saffron-tinged Russia, so a, an idea that India may be on a similar path to Russia where a lot of oligarchs are, are in fact uh, controlling the country. This seems to be a form of history repeating itself. Do you think it's possible in the broader sense for developing countries to create this amount of extraordinary wealth without these massive inequalities and risks to democratic development? Or, or is that the price to pay for an emerging market to go through this inequality? I picked the analogy of the US Gilded Age for a couple of reasons, one of which was a little cynical, I suppose, which is that I felt that I'd lived in India for five years, but even my sort of worldly graduate school friends who lived on the American East Coast didn't really know very much about India. And so India, as any big complicated foreign country, is a lot to take in in one go. And it's helpful to have an analogy that makes sense to the story that you're telling that is more familiar to uh, an international audience as well. But I suppose that the other reason for picking the, the Gilded Age, the period after the American Civil War, so that the 20 or 30 years in which the US went through a broadly similar set of circumstances, namely you know, the beginning of a, of a modern society that move away from agriculture, urbanization, and with that comes the rise of robber baron tycoons and corrupt urban politics was partially to say that yes, India is a you know it's a unique situation, it's its own country, but actually it's going through a phase in the development of a of a sort of system of capitalism that is quite familiar, and that although it was true that when I was there and today, you know, India is a very corrupt society, but that was also true in America in the eighteen seventies or Britain in the eighteen twenties or. South Korea in the 1960s, or China in the 2000s. So there is something in this period of early industrialization where there's no country on earth that has managed to go through this period of rapid early industrialization in a way that has been egalitarian and has had scrupulously clean Danish or New Zealand style politics. <laughs> so I was trying to make this argument that you know, many countries have been here before, and some of them haven't turned out very well, but some of them have. Mm -hmm. So there, there are choices that can be made. And, and so, yes, there are countries that began with ruinous levels of inequality and corruption, and they ended up where Brazil or South Africa or 
some of the Latin American countries are now, but there are others that moved through this phase of, of early industrialization and managed to become pretty well governed, certainly a lot more egalitarian either than India is now or indeed many countries in the West. So that was not to sort of duck the issue, but but simply to say that nothing is preordained. And so, you know, India's future is yet to be written. Interesting, because the, the billionaires you describe in the book do seem to be the result of a shaky regulatory environment and a bit of an alliance with certain politicians. Do you think going forward that these billionaires are going to perhaps claim more political influence or will will that lessen? Do you foresee that Indian political institutions will strengthen in the face of this slightly corrupt influence? I mean, it, it's a little hard to tell. Generally speaking, political institutions strengthen as countries get richer and there's a whole literature about whether or not it is institutions that help countries develop and, and high quality institutions that are kind of the key to rapid economic development or whether it's to do with human capital education levels. The current trajectory in India is a little less optimistic, namely that certainly if you look at India's democratic institutions over the last 10 or 15 years when Narendra Modi was either coming to power or has been in power, there's quite good evidence that that there has been a kind of degradation of some of India's democratic institutions, so the functioning of its parliament or its courts or its central bank. And so that worries its judiciary, which is always a little complicated to deal with. Um, and I speak as someone who was sued for a ridiculous amount of money by one of these billionaires on an entirely spurious uh, case. And so I got a kind of first-hand taste of what it's like to deal with the Indian judiciary. Wait a minute. Can you tell us more about this story, or are you under some sort of <laughs> settlement that you can't talk about it? No, not anymore. It was, I was sued for $100 million by the brother of Mukesh Ambani. He's called Anil Ambani. Not actually for something that was in the book, although the book went through a really painful, lengthy process of three different sets of highly paid lawyers for the Indian American and British edition, respectively. And so it was crawled over by libel lawyers. And so I got all the way through that, and the book came out, and we thought we might get sued by any number of people, and we didn't. And then I wrote an unremarkable op-ed in a Japanese newspaper and was sued for $100 million for nothing in particular by, you know, like a few lines in that piece that were not remotely libelous, but the, the, the Indian tycoon class used the Indian legal system, which is obviously very favorable to their interest to intimidate journalists, not with any expectation that damages will ever be paid, but simply just as pain in the backside. Mm -hmm. And so I had to spend a tedious amount of time working with lawyers to, to kind of defend this case until it gradually ran into the ground. Anyway, the point being that in the long run, I would expect that India's institutions would probably strengthen over time. If you look at the kind of the long run of history as it moves forward over the coming decades, and India simply has more money to spend on institutions. But presently, the trend is not in a very positive direction, in part because of the, the slightly more autocratic direction in which Narendra Modi has been taking the country since coming to power. And so aside from getting sued by tycoons, what was some of the feedback you received from Indians having read the book? 
was the perspective uh, generally favorable or was there a feeling that this was some form of intrusion or how was the reception? Yeah, there are an awful lot of books written by basically white Western journalists about India uh, to the point that I used to joke about the fact that I was doing that. And some of them come across as being slightly uncharitable, excessively critical. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I, like, I liked in, living in India very much. I had many Indian friends, and I suppose I wanted to write a book that was fair to the, the country where I had lived and you know, that was mindful of being a guest in somebody else's house. But I suppose what surprised me about it was, as I said, I mean, I, I thought when I was writing this that the sort of stories that I was writing would be predominantly interested to outsiders who were ignorant of India, but less interesting to people in India who would know most of these stories anyway, because they were, you know, I wasn't breaking enormous amounts of new ground. What I was trying to do was tell these stories in a way that was, you know, elegantly written and entertaining to read, but I was in a sense, we telling things that many Indian people would already know. And that turned out to be completely wrong. I mean, A, I suppose I had some access that Indian writers maybe didn't have as a result of the, the kind of good fortune of the work that I had done. But it turns out people in India are totally fascinated by their own business elite, just in the same way that Americans like to read books about Donald Trump. And so the reception to the book was pretty positive, really, and more, much more positive than I than I thought it would be. And even the characters in the book were, I didn't have any spectacular fallings out with any of the, the main characters that I profiled. Most of them were, at best, a little bit unhappy with elements of the way that I had portrayed them, but, but sort of generally happy to be in the book. So I thought some of them might send me angry messages and uh, strike me off the Christmas card list forever, but it didn't quite work out like that. So, And not invite you to weddings, as you were at one point in the book, you described being invited to some billionaire's daughter's wedding, I think, and you not attending. Yeah, it's just a funny cultural story where I was sitting in my office in downtown Mumbai and this preposterous wedding invitation arrived. And so instead of, don't don't think of a wedding invite in the sense of an envelope and a card, this was like being delivered a small chest <laughs> or a very large and ornate box of chocolates. And inside the, this wooden box, there was indeed a carefully gold-embossed letter, but also a selection of various sweets and nuts and all the rest of it. And it invited me to the wedding of the uh, son of Goto Madani, the, the mm -hmm. said billionaire, now the second richest person in the world. And I thought, well, I, I can't possibly go to this wedding because I don't know this guy. As yet, I hadn't met him, nor had I met his family. And I completely misunderstood that Indian weddings, you know, if you go to a, a Western wedding, typically you have to have some connection to the mm -hmm. bride or groom. But in India, it's completely different. The, these weddings are simply giant social occasions in which the families will invite people that they know in the wider community. And so for whatever reason, they had decided to invite me and we didn't go, despite the fact that it was a kind of all expenses paid trip to a fancy beach resort in Goa. And so I told that story in the book, both as a kind of example of my own ignorance about uh, Indian culture, but also just an interesting insight into the way in which the, the sort of business elite there operates and works as a kind of social glue for the, the business elite. I'm curious how your view of India has shifted in terms of its billionaires, 
its geopolitical position, how it might have shifted since you moved to Singapore. And again, I made a similar move, as, as you well know, from India to Singapore. And I'm curious to see how that move to Singapore and into your new role might have impacted your, your view of India economically, politically, geopolitically. Well, so now I look at India in a, in a different respect, which is, so I now run the Asia operations of this think tank called the IISS, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. So I spend less time thinking about Indian political economy and more time thinking about Indian geopolitics, but actually in terms of writing the book. So I moved here on a sabbatical in theory from my journalism job in 2016 and went to work at the university for a year here at the Lee Kuan Yew School. And what was helpful about that was it was, A, I wanted some mental distance from India to kind of write the book, but it also helped me locate the rise of India within a much broader story about the, the rise of Asia, and in particular, the, the Asian tigers So from the Second World War. How was it that Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, and South Korea had this historically unusual rapid rise in wealth to become effectively as rich and prosperous as any countries on earth and and how did they manage to do that and, and then the, the subsequent generation of countries like Thailand and Malaysia to some limited degree Indonesia Vietnam sort of how had they followed suit and if you begin to look at that this sort of story of East Asian economic development which shares some similarities with India it, started out with countries that were often quite corrupt, quite autocratic in their government style, and then many of them, South Korea, Taiwan, to some degree, Singapore, became a, a little bit more sort of democratic and certainly very well run. And so that, that was the sort of intellectual influence of Singapore, what was being able to understand not just the story of the American Gilded Age as an analogy for India that might be helpful, but also the broader story of the rise of, of East Asia, which again, you know, features all sorts of hair-raising stories of corruption and to some degree inequality. Um, although, as I mentioned before, many of these countries ended up much more uh, egalitarian than even the best of the Western social democracies. So in, in many ways, there were, there were sort of interesting lessons to learn from that. Let's talk about reading habits, because I know how passionate you are about this question of reading habits. We, we often exchange, you and I, on where we are with regard to our reading plans. And so I guess now's a good opportunity to, for me to find out from you where you are in your reading in terms of the number of books you've read and what your objectives are maybe for 2023, as I know you like to plan in advance. Yeah. Well, so about three years ago, I set myself the target of reading 50 books a year. And for the last couple of years, I failed to meet that target. And I also have, a, in terms of my reading habits, I tend to read uh, five or six books at once. So mm -hmm. I have about half a dozen books sort of underway in different formats. So I'll have a, a book or two on Kindle or the um, Libby, which is the, the reading app for the Singapore Library, which you may remember when you were mm -hmm. here. And then a couple of books in hardback, both fiction and nonfiction. And I suppose the reason that I do that is it means that there's a kind of a book to hand at any moment, depending on what you're in the mood for, as in sometimes you're, you feel like you're, you want to read something you know, challenging and improving nonfiction, and sometimes you want to read a you know a spy thriller, 
and if you you're sort of midway through various of these things. So so at the moment I have the Harlem Shuffle, a Colson Whitehead no- novel about uh, oh, sort yeah. of crime thrillers in in Brooklyn. The new Robert Harris thriller, Act of Oblivion, about mm-hmm. the the regicides in the English Civil War. A book called Homeland Elegies uh, by Ayad Akhtar, which is a kind of post nine eleven book, and a few other things as well. So I've tried to use this list as a way of guilt tripping myself into reading more, by which I mean reading more mindfully and deliberately as opposed to just grazing on whatever happens to be on my phone and just focusing a bit more on on reading in part because if it you know that if you sort of get off track then the target becomes impossible to reach that's right that, that, that's what's happened in the last couple of years that, that's probably the main lesson of the last couple of years is that you start missing a few days here and there and then the target becomes out of reach yeah something like that i wouldn't say that i have a it's not like doing daily exercise i suppose i can feel when i haven't been reading enough and then i force myself to get sort of slightly back on track so i wouldn't say that i have a i have a kind of like an, an ideal uh, reading day i suppose in which i would read um, instead of looking at my phone on the MRT into work, and then I would in the evening between nine and ten before I go to bed would you know would sort of sit quietly and read at, at that time of the day. And then sometimes there are times in which you you know holidays and other times in which you get some reading time um, elsewhere. But I, I found that just having this spreadsheet and the structure and, and even simply the act of telling a few friends that you're doing this helps to kind of keep you honest. It's a sort of an accountability device somehow. The spreadsheet is essential, I can confirm, as is the planning. And as is, I would say, the consistency. You do have to read every day and you have to be, at least for me, I have to be quite clear as to the number of pages I'm going to read in a day. Planning and the execution is pretty critical and the tracking and it is like going to the gym and it has to be consistent. Out of the 50 books you've read this year, what's the best book? The best book that I have read this year? It's a good question. I mean, I'll give two mm-hmm. that I really like. One at the very beginning of the year. So uh, both nonfiction, actually. Um, so there was, there was a book by an Albanian academic called Lea Ipi called Three which is a memoir of her growing up in in the communist and post-communist Albania. I read that right at the beginning of the year. It was almost the first or second book that I read. That's a harsh regime. Yeah, it's really fascinating book. Though. It's, and the thing about it is it doesn't sound like it's going to be much fun. And she's a beautiful writer, very, very perceptive, good storyteller. And it, it, it sort of drops you into a world that, you know, there, there's a certain fascination of the ordinary life lived in a totalitarian regime. Mm-hmm. And so her memory of growing up in, in Enbohodges, Albania, and then the contradictions that came with economic liberalization, I thought that was really compelling, beautifully mm-hmm. written. The one that I liked most recently, which I read, there are actually there are two nonfiction books, and these are all Western, so they're, they're, um, I've got a few other more, uh, more Asian books, but I, I just read the Robert Caro's not one of the whacking great autobiographies, but his book on writing, which is just called Working. Fantastic book. Yeah, I just thought that was phenomenally good. Yeah. So interesting in terms of the sort of fanaticism of his methods, but also just really good stories um, about the 
the lengths that he would go to in trying to write, well, firstly, his book on Robert Moses, and then this sort of epic series of books that he's writing on uh, on LBJ. Would you say that people need to have read the Power Broker or the Lin- Lyndon Johnson books before reading Working, or do you think Working can be read independently of those? Well, I haven't read the other books, oh. um, and I've always been a bit put off by them because, to be honest, I tend to find a biography to be a somewhat disappointing genre, and also big weighty books of history I also sort of struggle with I enormous kind of 800-word books about the history of the, the Silk Road or, you know, they're okay, they're, they're interesting, they're great works of scholarship, but often they're not that much fun to read. They don't have a kind of good narrative or, or characters. I think that's the difference with Caro is that this is fun to read. Right, and so people say, but nonetheless, I haven't got round to reading uh, either the Moses book or any of the LBJ books. So this was sort of my first taste of the Caro that everyone has been going on about. And I have to say it was terrific, and it's now convinced me that I should go and read the... I think I'll read the Moses book first. You've been converted. Yeah. Welcome to the cult. There we go. There we go. (laughs) I'm curious, James, what's the book that you found was the biggest disappointment uh, that you read this year. It doesn't have to be a book you, that was written this year, but what was the book that you found maybe overrated, overhyped, or frankly terrible? That is a very good question. I mean, the one that I, I very rarely read, sort of nonfiction of the sort that you would find in airports. But I mean, that's not quite true because you often find good novels in airports, but hypey business books of the sort that pretend to explain cultural phenomenon or business phenomenon, because they're almost always disappointing. They're articles that are padded out to 300 pages. Mm -hmm. And I made an exception this year because I would listen to a podcast by a guy called Matthew Ball, um, who'd written a book on the metaverse. And and the book was called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. And, you know, I should have just known from that title that I should steer well clear. But the (laughs) podcast was very compelling. And so I thought maybe I'd read a book about it and see if I could understand what all the hype was about. And the book was just terrible. I mean, it was it was such a disappointment. It was lots and lots of contextual history about the history of technology that was not interesting. And then one of my rules is I try not to skim read. But you know, with this one, I, I really wanted to kind of fast forward and get to the bit where he told me about what the metaverse was going to be like and what the <laughs> business case was. And then when you got there, it was very... Um, I was very disappointing, kind of not, not terribly illuminating. But as I say, I, I try and avoid those kind of books. I also don't read very many books about geopolitics because I feel that I absorb a lot of that kind of stuff in my day-to-day work. And so I feel the the marginal benefit of reading, you know, yet another book about sort of the US and China, unless it's extremely well told. Are there any geopolitical books, I mean, in your position as a geopolitical expert that you would recommend that you think are extraordinary? The book which I I really enjoyed this year as fiction is a thriller. I didn't give it five out of five because it was, you know, it's a thriller. It's not sort of great literature, but it was very enjoyable. It was a book called 2034, which is by Elliot Ackerman and and Jim Stravidis. James Stravidis, Admiral James Stravidis was a, a very senior U.S. military figure, and he co-wrote this book with Elliot Ackerman, who's a journalist, and it's a fictional imagining of a conflict between the United States and Taiwan in 2034. 
And it's pretty well written, surprisingly so. I mean, I, I went into it with pretty low expectations that it would just be kind of schlocky, badly written nonsense. But actually, the writing isn't bad. Not superb, but it's pretty serviceable. It has interesting characters and is quite well told. And it also just gives a very plausible set of scenarios that is also quite well grounded in the way that you know the military diplomacy actually works. So as somebody who works in that world, the way in which they were describing the, the way the military operates, the way the diplomats and defense attaches work, and the way that they talk to one another, it wasn't a million miles away from what would actually be true. So it had that satisfying quality of a really good spy novel even if it wasn't true or accurate, it, it was sort of plausible. So interesting that the book you refer to as the, the head of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Asia is a novel as opposed to all these big tomes that one might imagine are the books that people in your position might read uh, and that you, you're not really convinced by that genre, it seems. Yeah, as I say, I, I try and avoid it. I mean, sometimes there are books that are sort of unavoidable. But actually, as I look down my list this year, there are very few works of kind of big picture geopolitics because you you can kind of get the gist of those sort of books by reading the article that comes out about them, to be mm -hmm. honest. I mean, you know, there tend to be books that make an argument. You know, so there are lots and lots of books about China, for instance, but most of them are not good. One of the, the best, actually, and, and this this was one that I read this year, which I really liked, was a nonfiction book about China called Red Roulette by uh, an author called Desmond Shumwood. Desmond Shum was a Chinese entrepreneur, to some degree, a sort of practitioner of crony capitalism. And he and his wife, they built the Bulgari Hotel in Beijing and various other big famous property developments, including some linked to Beijing Airport. And then they fell from grace spectacularly and he had to flee the country and now lives uh, weirdly in North Oxford and his wife was arrested and disappeared in China for a long time. They're now Gosh. separated. And so this book, it was co-written with John Pomfret, who's a, a journalist and author of some kind of good repute. And it is very well written and very pacey and interesting, but it also just gives this astonishing portrait of the adrenaline and sheer terror of trying to grow rich in modern China. And it was quite unlike anything that I'd ever read before and is worth, you know, a hundred versions of books called The Dragon Rising or whatever it might be. <laughs> the Dragon Rising. All of these books that, that kind of in a fairly formulaic way either tell the story of the rivalry between the US and China or the rise of, of modern China. And so yeah, Red, Red Roulette, I, I really liked it. Next question, you're the dictator of a small country. What book do you make compulsory reading for your citizens and why? I suppose I would be tempted to go back to Wolf Hall, but it's uh, in part because I feel like it, it just tells such a rich story about the nature of political power. I mean, when the Robert Caro was writing about why it was that he was interested in writing about Robert Moses and LBJ, the thing that he kept coming back to in the book that we talked about earlier working was about the fact that you learned so much about the nature and workings of governance and power from the stories of these men, how they built their roads or they passed their legislation. And I suppose beyond the extraordinary account of, of a particular moment in, in British history, and the thing that I took out of those books was the way that they talked about the, the application of power and the way people wielded power 
So that would be a slightly more complicated than something simple like, I don't know, reading the autobiography of Nelson Mandela or something from George Orwell or whatever it might be. It's a good one. It's probably my favorite book. So I guess if you're a dictator, you can force people to read your favorite books. You impose your favorite book or you impose your own book. So you could impose The Billionaire Raj if you wanted to. That's true. Final question for you, James. What is your next book? Are you working on anything at the moment? Are you inspired uh, by any specific subjects? I have the the strong aspiration to write another book. I mean, in a sense, writing a book was what I had always wanted to do. Um, the challenge, of course, is that book writing doesn't really pay money unless you're a celebrity chef or you're writing a kind of particular sort of book that can be serialized by Netflix or something like that. But it's a very hard way to make a living. So, so in a sense, people in my position where you aspire to do this again, you, you've got to build up a, a bit of resources, and then and then maybe once you've worked properly, then you can figure your way uh, free to maybe writing another another kind of book but not at the moment i hope uh, soon enough to get back to a position where i where i can do that you know thankfully it's an interesting world out there so there will be many topics to ponder lots to write about indeed and looking forward to that book james crabtree thank you again for your time really enjoyed speaking to you great pleasure to be here That was James Crabtree, author of The Billionaire Raj, sharing his views and knowledge on India, a country in the midst of enormous change. If you're interested in getting a strong perspective on the country, then this book certainly offers some fantastic insights on the economic and political landscape, which is currently in flux at the moment, and I highly recommend you read it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at litwithcharles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.